politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight for our life, liberty, and property like we've never fought before. If that is your goal, well, this is your one-stop shop, increasingly your only place on so-called conservative industry media. Daniel Horowitz back here in the house today, May 18th, and it truly is a fight like we've never faced before. We have never faced such a complex assault, existential threat to every aspect, I wouldn't say of our country, but of our livelihood, lives, bodies, minds, souls, you name it. Whether it's the green energy holocaust, whether it's COVID biomedical fascism, the border, the crime, the manipulated Federal Reserve and congressional printing of money economy that boxes any normal person out of the American dream or even a life of dignity. And then you look at things like, you know, Axios had an article today that 25% of people between the age of 18 and 29 now say they're depressed. A 12-point jump just from 2017. A lot of that is COVID fascism, the unaccounted cost of it. Um, But, you know, a lot of it is just in general – what they've done to society, family, the technology, the transhumanism. You look at our own government, Garrett O'Boyle, the FBI whistleblower, just said at a judiciary subcommittee hearing, all I wanted to do was serve my country by stopping bad guys and protecting the innocent. To my chagrin, bad guys have begun running parts of the government. Now, we knew that already. But that was an admission from a real FBI agent. Th- these are issues that that some days I just step back and say, anything that we're proposing to do is such small ball relative to what we face. But at the same time, as I mentioned yesterday, if I'm going to engage in this, and if you guys are going to take the time to listen, we have to work with the materials we have, and that includes jerky Republicans, loser conservatives, to try to address their sensibilities to somehow harness some sort of reckoning. And what I'm hoping to do is point out these inflection points, and it starts with the debt ceiling we're going to talk about today, but then it will go to the government funding bill, September 30th, and several other points of leverage reauthorization bills to one by one go through these kind of 8 to 10 existential threats and see how many of them we could address and how much we could achieve on each one. That's all we can do is the best possible. And that's what I want to talk about, this reckoning that we need. The debt ceiling is giving us our first opportunity. It might not be on all the weaponization and biomedical tyranny issues we'd like, but hopefully it will set the stage to finally give some of these people a backbone to make brinkmanship great again so that we can then use the subsequent uh, leverage points as well. So I want to get into that. Uh, we're going to have Chip Roy on to discuss the latest with the debt ceiling and so much more. Our first sponsor today, we've really been talking about the importance of not just owning a gun, but learning how to properly defend yourself. One of those tools is iTarget Cube. So we've been talking about iTarget. It's a laser bullet where you could do dry fire practice 
you don't spend a dime on ammo. Uh, basically, a hundred bucks, and you go to iTargetPro.com, offer code CR, you can get it for even less. But now they have iTarget Cube, which takes it to the next level. So it's not just kind of a you know a one shot thing that you aim on a board, but you could place several cubes throughout your house and then time yourself how long it takes to clear clear different rooms you shoot shoot at the cube it renders your your uh, shot uh, visually on a target you download their app and boom i mean this is something that you could practice 90% of your your muscle memory skills your trigger control your sight alignment your time reaction you get everything except for the recoil which you shouldn't be anticipating, and it comes in all calibers. So go today to the letter I, targetpro.com, itargetpro.com, offer code CR. So look, you know, nothing's perfect, but we are the farthest we've ever been in actually forcing a brinkmanship. Okay, the Democrats are starting to get a little scared. They were shocked that they didn't back down. And, you know, the House did pass a bill. You want $1.5 trillion in new debt ceiling, about a year's increase? Well, we're going to get abolishing the Green New Deal, more drilling, um, reverting to 2022 spending levels, work requirements for certain welfare programs, canceling Obama's uh, you know debt forgiveness for student loans, a um, couple other provisions there. And, you know, it's, it's not everything we, we want. But dude, if they would secure half of that, that would be better than we've ever achieved with a trifecta. And this is all a credit to the speaker's fight that 90% of my colleagues dumped on, by the way, or certainly weren't helpful in, because now conservatives got a seat at the table, and, and they finesse this. Now, I could sit back and say, oh, I want more, I want more. But you know what? They've gotten this far. So I want to talk about some of the messaging and pitfalls that we have to avoid. Um, first, I just want to, before we bring on Chip to discuss the latest, I do want to read to you a Politico article about the Senate, just so you understand where Senate Republicans are, how pathetic it is. I give them a lot of credit for putting the ball in Biden's court, but the next step is, will they support the compromise, said John Cornyn. The Senate will support whatever McCarthy and Biden agreed to. We'll just back up the House. Why is he saying, will they support compromise? Why is he always talking about process rather than saying, Biden better not mortgage our future? It's the woke and weaponized government. It's the paying people not to work. It's the inflation. You are defaulting on our future. Is it that hard? We'll have Chip on, but I mean, there's a two-minute clip of him. If you want to just Google the House GOP press conference yesterday, there was a two-minute soundbite of him that was pure fire. I'm thinking, is it that hard for them to say that? But anyway, you have all these Senate Republicans. Um, Shelley Moore Capito. A lot of that will depend not just on what McCarthy comes away with, but how he can work with conservatives to get sufficient GOP support for a deal. So meaning they're more concerned with how to get conservatives to move left rather than getting everyone else to move right. We don't want default, she added. At some point, we're going to have to find a way through this. Meaning, all right, guys, you held your ground enough. 
We're surprised you managed to pass a bill, but now it's time to work with Biden. Why are they pressuring House Republicans rather than pressuring Biden? Joni Ernst said that we're going we're gonna to have to strike a deal sooner rather than later. People are worried. So it's just bizarre. They're, they're more worried about the fallout from not raising the debt rather than the debt. And by the way, I just want to say with this, when we talk about strategic thinking and outcomes versus, you know, and, and having your, you know, interests align with your outcomes and vice versa, I'm just going to tell you in retrospect, it was better for Republicans not to have control of the Senate. See, if, if Republicans had control of the Senate and McConnell was majority leader, he would be undermining us every step of the way, and he still might do that. But now it's more like, well, Democrats have the presidency and Republicans have the House, so the Senate's kind of irrelevant because the GOP is in the minority. It is actually better that they did not take control. That's just an example of negative efficacy that sometimes you have to think of. No one would understand what I would say. It's better not to elect people like Oz than to have a Democrat. And people can't understand that. But this is a classic example. They really don't have any benefit from holding a simple majority in the House with all, in the Senate with all these rhinos once they have the House. And this really proves that it would have been negative. So they continue to dump on it. But the message needs to be clear. That what we are doing is unsustainable. It's not, the debt is not just some sort of a number, but it reflects the government robbing from the American people in the form of regulation, but also in the form of inflation. I think that issue was lost on people for many years, but now it's undeniable with the amount of printing they did juxtaposed to the amount of inflation. Because for a while, they were able to keep this Ponzi scheme running. So inflation didn't run away. I must admit, I am surprised as to how many years they were able to keep it going. But that music is uh, is is uh, is uh, over with, and we're left without a chair. They have lost control of this. So right now, they passed a bill. We're raising the debt ceiling, but simple common sense things that help prosperity, inflation, cut spending. Again, we could we could debate do this, do that. That's not what's important. To me, what's important is. That for the first time, they're willing to not blink. We got to keep this up. It's a, you know, we always got to be vigilant. But I'm not going to prejudge failure if so far they've done roughly what we want them to do. You know, more or less, when you just have a four-seat majority with all these rhinos, even in the House. So how do we message our way through this? How do we you know, watch for some pitfalls? What are some good strategies I want to bring in Chip, um, but first, today's interview is sponsored by Barrel Buddy. Look, if all you do is eye target and dry fire, then you're never going to have a dirty gun. <laughs> so I guess you don't need to clean it. But obviously, you do need to go to the range here and there to have real uh, live fire drills, and then over time, you got to clean your gun. Um, you know, there's two things about a gun uh, that that that's a threat to your gun. It's politicians and dirt. So it doesn't jam it. Politicians, you might not be able to do something about, but you definitely can clean your gun. Boar snakes don't work as well, 
and these cloths don't, uh, you know, are very messy and inefficient. Barrel buddy compresses. It's a it's a cartridge that compresses to fill the interior of your gun's barrel, making sure to clean the rifling grooves. Comes in seven different sizes to match all the common calibers. It's composed of these polymers that don't leave behind residual particles. That's just very important. It's safer. It's more efficient. It's developed by Jim Eric and Paul of Michigan, who are real wingers, by the way, fans of of our movement. Uh, they've been doing this for 10 years, and I don't think they've gotten enough credit. It's just 15 bucks for 50 Barrel Buddy cartridges at BarrelBuddy.com, the most efficient way to clean and then lube your gun. Uh, gives you a uniform application, leaving no lint. Sometimes you need to jam a round peg into a round hole, and that's what Barrel Buddy does at BarrelBuddy.com today. So, folks, as I've mentioned before, we have to make sure we don't run the risk of being a reverse thumbsucker. Just like you have the plain thumbsuckers that never want to fight. Everything the GOP does is good. Likewise, you can't be a reverse thumbsucker and say everyone's going to screw you all the time. Look, you know my view that I don't think we're ultimately going to achieve much until we have a new party. But at the same time, if I'm going to do this, I have an obligation to get as much out of any leverage point, any election, any legislative fight that we can with the soldiers we have. And truth be told, the speaker's fight worked wonders. Conservatives have a seat at the table. And even, as we've mentioned, the Senate GOP is just yapping off message. Um, McConnell saying ridiculous things about process, never giving his opinion on the underlying crisis of woke and weaponized government, debt and inflation piling up, just all Biden should meet here or there. But you know, House Republicans with just a four-seat majority, we've gotten farther than we've ever gotten so far in, in such a fight, and we're teetering very close to possibly achieving something. So before I opine more on that, I wanted to get an on-the-ground view of what is actually happening. Chip Roy, obviously, is no stranger to you guys. Uh, Texas 21, uh, he is now someone with a seat at the table, always hard-charging for our causes. Hey, Chip, it's been way too long. What's going on? Good morning, Daniel. Great to be on, as always. Um, just think, you know, appreciate what you do. Keep everybody informed about what's going on. And you just described it very well um, in terms of the state of play. And for all the listeners out there, I mean, you guys know where I come from and my deep skepticism of all things Washington, all things swamp. Uh, my battles over, you know, now almost two decades with, with the swamp and, and uh, the, quote, establishment in Washington. And, and look, the result of the speaker's debate, um, I don't even call the speaker's fight anymore. It was a, it was a significant yep. debate. And we got to a conclusion. As you said, we have a seat at the table. But, you know, with that then comes <laughs> some degree of responsibility and ownership and trying to figure out how to navigate through it. It is what it is, right? We have a four-seat majority. So to Daniel's point, how do we move this as far as we can, like the speaker's debate itself, and then at some point go, okay, we got enough, get off the off-ramp, and then let's go pick another fight, right? So that's always the debate. So currently right now in the debt ceiling, we've – set the tone right we passed i would call it a fairly righteous uh spending re uh, reform bill uh that had things in it you never thought you'd get through a republican house of representatives much less both uh you know the house and the senate and the president and we we got that across the finish line in the house that's a big deal to me that that's the starting point for any conversation starting point is not the same as 
you know, the, the floor or baseline, although some of my colleagues, I think, would say, yeah, it's absolutely a floor. I view things always differently. And throughout the speaker's debate and everything else, I don't believe in any specific red lines. Like, the circumstances, yep. am I going to support something if you change X? Well, that's just a dumb way to negotiate. Because what if I, were, what if I got rid of two or three things out of what we did on the debt ceiling fight, but I got HR2, the border security bill, right? You and I would both agree, oh, now hold on. Now that's got a lot of value. So everything should be, hey, what are we going to do to have gotten meaningful change in light of the current circumstances? Now, where does that stand? Conversations are ongoing. I am privy to some things I cannot share. Um, they're going. Sure. I, I, I want to be very careful how I frame this. The, you know, the conversations are, are probably not going to be all that surprising to anyone, right? You know where the president is. You know where Senate Democrats are. So everything about what's happening right now is about the, the sort of gamesmanship of figuring out how hard you negotiate up against a supposed X date, right? That's the whole debate. It's the only reason we're having the conversation. So that is what's going to drive consideration of what happens. You know, are we going to get the exact same bill that the, the, the House passed? No, the law of politics says we won't, right? Because then that, that's clearly a win for us and the other side can't take that. So the question is, what will happen if they want to extend the length of time of the debt ceiling increase? Right now, what we pass would expire next spring, next March, March 31st, or $1.5 trillion, whichever comes first. And for that, we got a litany of things, right? And your listeners know this because they're smart and educated, right? We got uh, reductions to 2022 spending levels capped over 10 years with a 1% increase, saving $3.5 trillion. We got a reduction in the Inflation Reduction Act, which, according to Goldman Sachs, is $1.2 trillion, which are the subsidies going yep. to fat cat environmentalists, you know, getting tons. And as you all know, that's my favorite yeah. because that's not just the dollar cost. That is the transition to Agenda 2030. That's life, liberty, property, standard of living. 100%. You name it. Dan yeah, so that, that, that's a big yeah, one. To me, that's by far the most important one. And again, without getting into the details, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that for Democrats, what they got in the Inflation Reduction Act, specifically with the Green New Deal garbage, is their holy grail, because Democrats are 100 times smarter than, than Republicans. It's just true. They're willing to go to the mat for the things they know matter. Because if they want to change like a tax rate or if they want to go, oh, we'll give you, you know, $50 billion on obligated COVID money, because they don't give a crap because they recognize that's peanuts. What they, what they understand, like they understood in Obamacare, is what can we do to change the entire trajectory of this country? So they fight to the death over those things. So I, if you ask Chip Roy, what is the most important two things we could get or three things we could get? It's not even the spending caps. It's not even the, re, even though that's woke weaponized government and I support it, it's not even, it's the Inflation Reduction Act, Green New Deal subsidies that are going to destroy our economy. And it would be HR2, right? Those are the transformative things that we could push back to transform sovereignty and our economic well-being and our ability to have freedom to be able to drive vehicles yep. around. And, and HR2 would, would effectively end catch and release, end the asylum fraud and this whole <laughs> border invasion. So those are systemic issues, not just cutting some agencies here and there. A um, couple quick points, because I know you got to run. Um, number one I am seeing a lot of grumbling about legacy issues like work requirements for the mandatory welfare programs. Um, I'm just – I wouldn't say concerned, but I, I would just caution 
to me, it's more important, like you said, to go after kind of the here and now type of issues. And you mentioned two of them, then work requirements, which is always kind of good messaging. We all support it. Do you feel as a sense that the conference understands that? Uh, look, uh, Republicans, Republicans <laughs> just aren't as good at this as Democrats. We are trying to change oh, that, right? But they fall into the trap, right? It's like work requirements. Gosh, even Bill Clinton supported that. Uh, Joe Biden voted that. Guys, why can't we just said it exactly correctly? Well, of course, we support work requirements. But here's the thing. So you're billing for Trump. You've got a federal government that's borrowing to then go throw that money out. What we're going to say is... You know what, you know what, Chip, you're you're fading a little bit in and out. And um, as if you can just get closer to the phone, yeah. as you're as you're doing that, I I would just uh point out that you know I I I understand that you know you're not going to get everything in the debt ceiling, and and I would take ultimately if they stand by it even less than what they passed in the original bill. But what I want to make sure we don't do, the worst thing I would say if you start from the realm of outcomes is to give away a lot of leverage for getting a little. So in my mind, that means if you're, if you're not going to get a lot, don't give them a long runway on the debt limit amount you're going to increase. And also don't muddle the next leverage point, which is the budget. The appropriation bill is expiring, obviously, September 30th. To me, I want to create, build a culture of getting significant stuff and then living to fight more and building it. What do you think about it? Yeah, that? I don't know. Hopefully you can hear me better now. I don't know. We're in a bad spot. But the yep. – the, um, yes, I agree. I mean, look, if it, if trying to finish the, the overall point here is Republicans have this tendency to believe – Give me some crumbs that, that, that I know I can actually pass with Democrat support, or at least if they won't support it, they'll acquiesce, and we can say we got this thing. And that thing is not, in the end, going to be transformative. Again, it's crumbs. If you think about the greatest things you would say about Republican uh, Congress in our lifetime, right? I mean, I was 22 years old when we took the House back in 1994. Now, what would we say we've gotten for that? Welfare reform, including Nothing. the work requirements in 1996. Okay, I'll give that a B plus or something. Yeah, but it, but it was a race, right? Uh, but but that's that's one thing with caveats. What else have we gotten? I mean, really hard for me to point to something, right? I mean, that you would call transformative. I mean, during that whole time. Now, I'm not here to complain or to wind up. I'm just it's instructive. So we're trying to flip that. We're trying to build. A, a yeah. coalition of people willing to actually go to mat for the future of the country. And, and so work requirements, fine. But if that's your win, dude, like give up, like you're, you're, you're not actually trying to fight for it. And again, yeah. you and I both get the reality of a Democrat Senate and a Republican and a Democrat white house. But I try to flip that. Right now, there are only 12 human beings out of 330 million Americans who stand between the utter chaos of not passing something and the fiscal sanity of doing it the right way. 11 Democrats in the Senate and Joe Biden. That's it. Those 12 people stand in the way. 11 Democrats in the Senate and Joe Biden. We have to think that way. That's what I'm trying to get my Republican colleagues to do. 
and to think transformatively. That's not to say there's not a deal. As you well put it a minute ago, there's not to say there's something south of or different than what we already passed. Of course, that's always on the table. We, gotta, we have to think through what can we get and when. But I want to win. I want a legitimate win. And that, that requires resetting the baseline and spending to gut the federal staff, the you know, bureaucracy. That requires undermining, you know, the, the, the subsidies of all of these Green New Deal, you know, garbage. That requires, you know, securing our border. Right? Those are things that are transformative. Um, you know, the court might strike down student loans. I'd get rid of the student loans. But I'd rather have those other things than, stu- than the student loans and then, let, and then see what happens to the court. You know, those yes. kinds of things. Yes. And, and ultimately, this is the balance that you got to have go with the army you have, but make sure you're not precluding leverage in the future. So, you know, one thing I want to make sure we don't do is tether the debt ceiling in a way that's going to interfere with the appropriations, because to me, I think that's where we have a ton of leverage um, to pass individual appropriation bills and stand by it. Um, so that's that's one thing. Now, I want to make sure and to the extent you can talk about this, one thing I want to make sure we do avoid is chickening out, meaning historically what they've done is when they start feeling the heat, they'll do, okay, a one-month, a two-month extension because they get scared. Once you do that, you're gone. Is there an understanding that they should never agree to a short-term thing with nothing in return? So, so right now I think there is a – a uh, broad understanding that if you start doing these like nickels where you're trying to do it at 30 days or, you know, three months or whatever, um, that you're just going to end up in this kind of infinite do loop of, of swamp, you know, negotiation. Um, you know, there's some, frankly, there's some people on both sides of the debate, kind of the right flank, left flank, kind of, well, maybe we should do that. But in broad terms, like that's, I think we generally agree. You start losing when you're going down that road. Um, what, what I think that where we are is that people understand we need to use this moment where we have the leverage. We've passed the bills. They're heading up to a date. We're not having a debate about a thousand other things. It's a very clear message at this point. We ought to just keep our foot on the gas on this message. And it's, it is the president who failed to negotiate. It is Yellen who failed to take this seriously. They're the ones that just sat there while we passed a bill. We have the upper hand. We've done the reasonable thing. It's a good bill. So we're starting there. I believe that's where we ought to be. And then you just, when you get up to the date, you realize, okay, what's, what, am I, what am I willing to take for how long of a time? And if they want a two-year extension, but they want to claw back what we already passed, I mean, they're already on the losing end, in my opinion, and we need to hold firm. But that's what, that's what the debate is at the moment. Final question. In order to allay some of the fears of the weaker members, is it worth pursuing a strategy where at a certain date, maybe in the near future, as things start getting hot, you pass a debt prioritization bill that directs the Treasury to prioritize interest on the debt as number one, Social Security number two, and go down from there? Because you know we've gone through the math before. You have enough for 75% of the budget, but not 100%, and most of that stuff we don't like anyway. Um, and that would officially take default off the table, which should be anyway, because we have enough money to pay interest on the debt. Is that something in the works? So we've had um, debates about that. Look, 
Tom McClintock from California introduced a bill as far back ago as 2011. Republicans have often brought this up. I think we would do well to pass that independent from a debate. I think once you're in the middle of the debate, passing a debt prioritization bill seems to send a message that you're the one wanting to drive over the cliff. And at this point right now, we've, I think we're in the strongest negotiating position because we've passed a bill. We're not the ones looking to drive over the cliff. They are. So I, yep. I would leave it with them and say, if you guys want to default, that's on you. That's my message. Like, you're the president of the United States. You know full well there's enough cash flow to pay our interest. You know there's enough cash flow to pay Social Security. If you're going to choose not to pay that, that's on you. And then we should expose that. We should expose it in hearings. Wait, you paid for national parks instead of Social Security? Why did you do that? Right? And so I think we can use leverage right now. Yep. In general, sure, you can do a debt prioritization bill. And we talked about it. And we have legislation. We passed one through, by the way, committee. It's sitting there. Um, but it's just a question of when and how you use it if you need to. So maybe we do it at the 11th hour. If they go off the cliff, once they do, maybe we could pass that immediately if we're over the cliff. But that's going to be on Democrats. I just want to be clear. No, that, that that's a good point. Don't negotiate with yourself. Now, I was just saying, you know, in case you start seeing panic in their ranks and, we, you know, there's there's fear we don't get anything – that's a way of saying, look, buddy, you did everything you can, but you're right. It is the way it is now. There's nothing in your bill that you can't defend before the American people. It cuts spending but does give them a full-year debt increase. He doesn't want it. That's his problem. He wants to default. Well, that's his choice because, um, right. you know, again, interest on the debt is as high as it is. As of now, they could pay for it. So that's all, uh, you know, a fake talking point from their side. Look, it's a new regime. Um you got to You got to do incremental, and and I think as long as it's incremental forward and not backwards, which is like you said, since 1994, that's what we've been experiencing. Then I'm all for it. Uh, keep us updated. Keep fighting, and uh, we'll speak to you on the other side. Thanks, Daniel. God bless you, my friend. Take care. So there you have it, folks. Chip Roy, there. Uh, you know, one of the few people that got into politics for all the right reasons. Every day he wakes up with one motivation. What could I do with the little perch I have? And it clearly shows he has moved the leadership to the right. Um, it's because of him, by the way, that the Green New Deal, green energy garbage was put into the bill to to remove that stuff. I agree with him that we need to focus on the quality. We can't let them get away with all oh, the student loan thing or something. Things like the border. The border is not currently in it. Chip wants to put it in there. And certainly the green energy stuff is key. Uh, look, it's a balance. To me, I want to make sure for the first time we get them to not blink, get something significant. It might not deal with the, you know, transhumanist Fourth Reich in the way we necessarily want, but to preserve that that unity and that brinkmanship. And then to me, the bigger thing will be the budget bills. Because then you don't have this lying thing about default and it's just a plain government shutdown which, um, you know, I think we should embrace because th this is the time. We need a reckoning. We need a moment where we have a unified attention. You have a brinkmanship. So part of the problem is that people don't know this stuff. They don't know what's going on. They're not happy, but they don't know the specifics because it's always a soap opera. You look at the news of the day from both the left media and the fake right media. It's always just off message. It's never about this is what they're doing, grooming a population. This is what they're doing, experimenting on your bodies. This is what they're doing on the border. 
and if you can, you, you can never harness enough or more than an hour's worth of information on that. But here, if you have everyone on message, I think I think this will work. I also agree with this point about, you know, right now there's no need to pass anything else. We pass the bill, the ball's in your court. Um, don't negotiate against yourself. I was just saying, look, you know, if the rhinos grow weary, oh my gosh, we're going to default, we have to do something. Just pass the bill saying you have to prioritize. And, and I want to get to just some of the thing that I feel they need to clean up the messaging a little bit. It's a little bit too much about, oh, no, it's Biden's fault we're going to default. It's, it's about the process. They need to get to the substance of the issue. And the substance of the issue is very simple. Right now, we could pay the interest on the debt. And Social Security and Medicare and the military and the VA and a couple other things. And this will force a balanced budget. Doesn't mean we won't issue new debt ever. But it will be commensurate with what we cut. Very simple message. But if you don't do it, then you're going to have default. Then you're going to go bankrupt from a position of weakness. Interest on the debt is the fastest growing thing. It's now going to be at $700 billion a year, which is almost where military spending is. Basically, here, here's the math. Right now, the deficit, annual deficit is going to be about $1.5 trillion. It's going to rise to well over two trillion um every single year according to cbo the cumulative deficits just in the next 20 years in the next 10 years is going to be well over 20 trillion and they always 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 lowball that they just had to revise up from their report a few months ago um that's the reality we won't even make it to the point of social security being a crisis a lot of people are like wait until social security you know goes bust we're gonna die long before that the interest on the debt is going to get us during the first seven months of this fiscal year, the largest single increase in net outlays was interest on the debt. It rose by 40% in one year. And again, the other point that they need to accentuate is it's not just public debt, but it's personal debt too. With the endless stagflation, so the cost of living rising much quicker than wages, which everyone could attest to, the average family can no longer afford food, fuel, housing, and health care. Well, what happens when interest rates skyrocket concurrent with the rising cost of living? Think about housing. The average mortgage on the median cost of a home is more than double what it was three years ago. More than double. It's like $2,700 a month, the average mortgage payment. How is that affordable? How could any, I, I, I myself don't understand how in most parts of the country, anyone in their 20s, let's say upper 20s, young couple trying to buy their first home, I don't even know how you afford it. You know, how had I not bought my home 10 years ago, um, you know, my home where it is basically doubled in price and the interest rates for a new mortgage doubled too. So the overarching message the GOP needs to convey is that the problem is the debt destroying our cost of living, not the debt ceiling. You don't blame the traffic on stop signs and red lights. <laughs> right? They're needed. They're necessary. We could abolish the debt limit like the left wants to do tomorrow. You could do it all you want. It won't matter. The Ponzi scheme's up. 
that needs to be the message. And the other thing is they have to make it clear that default is a choice of Biden's. Okay? Again, I don't have the monthly numbers, but the annual numbers is basically the Treasury takes in enough revenue to account for about three quarters of our six and a half trillion dollar budget. So we take in about 4.8 trillion. Net interest on the debt is skyrocketing. It's a lot. It'll be 663 billion for the year, but more on the latter half of the year than the first half, meaning the annualized rate for the latter half is going to be over 700 billion. So that's a lot, but we could pay that. Pay it. Done. Social Security is $1.3 trillion. Medicare net minus the offsets because there's certain revenue they get from taxes and whatever, the, the um, payroll taxes, is $820 billion. Defense is about $800 billion. And veterans programs is $173 billion. I just picked those. That adds up to about $3.8 trillion of the $4.8 trillion in revenue. So you have another trillion to use for parts of Medicaid, certain core discretionary programs of the agencies of the you know State Department and and uh, whatever and the rest is fair game. That's the message that needs to be put forth. If you prioritize the payments, there there will not be a default. Now there will be a government shutdown if you don't do something, but that's not a default. That is a that that, that is the first thing that needs to be put out there. I'm sick of this lie, and, and it has not been pushed back against enough. There is no default as long as you pay the interest on the debt. Okay, that's number one. Well, what about Social Security? We have enough money for that. What about Medicare? We have enough money for that. Basically, the discretionary agencies would be shut down, which is fine. If you want to reopen them, then you got to agree to our cuts and reforms and then we'll issue more debt. It's that simple. You know, one of the cases they need to make is that, yeah, you know, Social Security and Medicare are rising quickly, but according to CBO, if you look at this, the first seven months of this year, some of the fastest growing things are like the the Department of Education. The outlays for the Department of Education this year were 56% higher. That's a very different story to the American people than saying you're going to default on your debt. Outlays for the FDIC increased $39 billion because of the bailouts of the banks. But if they don't do something now, you're going to have this happen anyway. This is the joke. Revenues are plummeting. Why? Because of the debt. Why? Because that creates stagflation. Government outlays are up 12% this year. It's a big increase from one year. But total receipts and revenue are down 10%. They had a very disappointing haul from tax day, by the way. Because, you know, April is typically the month that they get a lot. And they're like, whoa, it was down. The inflation bubble, which is created by the very debt we're debating, is crushing the economy and dampening tax revenues. See, that, the point they need to make is that the debt is not just about spending, but it actually harms the revenues as well. 
because it's driving inflation. So they need a better talking point. Do you know Barack Obama said the following in March 2006 when he voted against George W. Bush's request for a debt ceiling increase. Increasing America's debt weakens us domestically and internationally. Leadership means that the buck stops here. Instead, Washington is shifting the burden of bad choices today onto the backs of our children grandchildren. America is a debt problem and a failure of leadership. America deserves better. I therefore intend to oppose the effort to increase America's debt limit. That was Barack Obama. Do you know when he said that? That was when the debt stood at $8.6 trillion. That's only a little more than a quarter of where it is today. It's not a long time. That's less than two decades. When and where will the buck ever stop? That's a simple speech that Kevin McCarthy needs to give. And they need to play that over and over and over again. That is the reality. Stop talking about process. Talk about the underlying issue. You bankrupted us. You make it that Americans can't afford anything. You harm our products and services. You're mortgaging our future. You're leading us to default with no plan. We're actually willing to raise the debt limit, but under these conditions that we rectify these problems, done. So I'd like to see the messaging a little bit better, but at least process-wise so far, they're holding the ground. And by the way, when you talk about inflection moments, it's not necessarily just a congressional fight, a budget fight, debt ceiling. You also could have certain cultural flashpoints that we need to draw more attention to. And one of them, and and kudos to one of our listeners from uh, Prince William County, Virginia, for reminding me of this. I wrote about this a couple months ago. That is the HUD regulation mandating affordable housing units and zoning basically to bring the hood into suburbs. You will never, ever, ever get a better issue than this because all of these, um, you know, all of these hoity-toity white liberals There's one thing they don't want. They don't want their oasis to be harmed. And I love this issue because this brings the fight right to them. Now, it brings it to all of us. But they basically want to allow... Biden's HUD in January issued um, an executive order to impose racial quotas on neighborhoods. Racial quotas and, you know, uh, affordable housing... And it basically opens the door that it conditions the community block grant, whatever development program um, to you have to sign off on what's called this AFFH. Okay. Affirmative further fair housing. Obama started it. uh, Trump reversed it. And it basically imposes low income housing mandates on areas HUD targets for social engineering. Now, what do you think they're going to target? See, they already know that the cities are untenable. So we figure we get away. But this is their way of ensuring that they chase us wherever we go. They're targeting red areas, swing areas. So the program will funnel funds to, it conditions you know local funding to this, but then it also 
funnels funding to agitation groups like the NAACP and all these crazy groups to transfer people from the inner city to suburban neighborhoods, all based on this data tool that they want to use to override local zoning laws. The ultimate form of social transformation without representation. It's a 284-page proposed rule. And it means HUD could target any area that they want to change. And they could simply say, hey, not enough you know, X number of people living there. And counties will have to submit annual plans on how to better meet HUD's political standards. Again, all the while, all the while enabling Soros-funded organizations to sue localities in court for not sufficiently complying. That's really the trigger on this. Um, and that's why you know a bunch of groups are involved in this NAACP, ACLU, Unidos US, Lawyers Committees for Civil Rights Under Law. Um, it's, it's a cash cow for them. So it funds all their legal challenges to shake down these neighborhoods. Okay, this is very, very important. Um, and, you know, HUD already spends $60 billion. Mo- about half of it goes to Section 8. And by the way, this is a double whammy. This is a double whammy. Because... On the one hand, it's very hard to afford housing for everyone now. It's very tough. And there's a whole crisis that people who need to or want to move aren't moving because you are locked. They, they, they created an asset bubble which raised the cost of homes, the price of homes, because interest rates were so low, um, artificially kept too low. But then that raised the cost of homes. So people jumped in. And they're now locked in at rates like, you know, I'm, I'm locked in at like three and, a, three and an eighth. Well, are you really going to want to now move and you're going to have a mortgage at six and a half, let's say? And then often the prices are higher. Now, for me, you know, I gained a lot of my house. So maybe if I want to move, I can make somewhat of a lateral move. But for a lot of people, it's not like that. You have to deal with both the doubling of the interest rate and the increased uh, you know, purchase price. Now you think, okay, well, at least then the hood will be boxed out of the neighborhood. No, that's where they squeeze you. You're going to have to pay a ton, but then they have $30 billion to, to shovel around for Section 8 and similar things, you know, building, you know, you know, and it's the cronyism. They'll have work with the developers to build multi-unit homes, townhouses in areas that there shouldn't be, Similar things like that. So cheaper housing. Then they'll have, some of them will be cheaper to purchase. Some of them will be designed to get rentals within the neighborhood and then subsidize them with Section 8. And what you're seeing in a lot of areas, I've heard from landlords, that government has strategically, again, because you know this is where <clears throat> the printing and the inflation comes from, they have an endless checkbook. So they've made it worthwhile to landowners to just say, hey, you know, I'll go with Section 8 rather than fair market value. They make it easier, not easier, but but more profitable to just have guaranteed income from government than to work to attract renters in a free market, even in a, in a high-rent market. This is what they're doing. So they're going to move the hood into your neighborhood. 
So I know this is going on in Prince William County, Virginia, which is very strategic because Prince William, if you look at any electoral map, it's like, you know, you have a lot of the rest of Virginia is conservative. You have uh, Fairfax and and Loudoun. Um, Northern Virginia is is liberal. Prince William is just the next county over south. That's where the battleground is, where, where you're going to lose or win Virginia. So they want to take a county like that and turn it over. Now, the good news is Prince William has a lot of hoity-toity, you know, government people that, that, that basically live off the government grift, these type of Karens. Well, you know, they, they can woke all they want and have all their, you know, you know, rainbow bumper stickers and hate has no home, whatever. But the bottom line is they don't want it there. And those guys, from what I hear, are really revved up about this. This is this is an issue that I think you can really crush the left on. It's a consensus issue. You can win back suburban voters on it. And Republicans would be stupid not to make this an issue to to obviously prohibit the AFFH stuff, but to also take a sledgehammer to Section 8. It is Section 8 is the biggest winning issue. It's an old issue, um, but that's the sort of thing, you know, when you talk about, I don't like this across-the-board cuts. I mean, I'll take it, but I'd rather target it to the most weaponized aspects of government, and HUD is a really good one. HUD is a really, really good one. But folks, don't doubt me. This is a way for them to screw you over. But anyway, we don't have much time left. I just want to go through some things. This is why we need a leader who will navigate this stuff. Who do you think would navigate a budget or debt ceiling fight better? Trump or DeSantis, who's laser beam focused on leverage, policy, outcomes? By the way, there's a, there's a story today in... Tampa's uh, NBC affiliate. A Pride event in downtown Tampa was canceled after a bill concerning adult live performances was signed into law Wednesday. On Thursday, Tampa Pride President Carrie West confirmed that the organization will not host its Pride on the River event this year. Done. Canceled it. Completely Done. This is it. It's not just because they passed the bill. It's because they know he will follow through on it. I have, I have a longtime listener who emailed me yesterday because uh, I talked about this teacher that showed this uh, homosexual film and she's under investigation from the Department of Education and he confirmed he was at that, that hearing the, um, the school board there this is really going down. There's follow-through with the Department of Health, follow-through with the Department of Education. Again, I don't understand why there is no excitement from all these conservative radio hosts for years. I've been listening since Rush Limbaugh, since I've been a kid. This is what they've always been dreaming of. Why won't you effing take yes for an answer? And again, not that one person could be that answer, but that you will elevate and reward that sort of behavior and demand that every other Republican state and local official emulate that and grow it and do better. Instead, we get the opposite. Rather than having a leader move everyone to the right, we have someone move the movement to the left. 
Trump yesterday doubled down on his uh, claims. He's saying he told Newsmax Rob Schmidt, DeSantis is losing women voters like crazy. Ron DeSantis is a big problem with women voters. He was referring to the, the heartbeat ban. And I'm thinking like, what are you talking about? Name me the suburban woman voter. Name me the voter who looks at DeSantis, smart, put together, focused on the people, but they won't vote for him because they're turned off by the heartbeatville. But somehow they're not turned off by Trump's you're fat, you're ugly, the psychotic statements, the narcissism, the lack of discipline. What in the world? Projection much? What's next? You're going to turn off the gay vote? I mean, that's coming soon. He's essentially saying that already. But like, dude, I, I'm look, you, you, you well know that from my vantage point, abortion is not in my top five. And I've explained why for many years, um, you know, that we have bigger pro, pro-life battles now. But again, it's not like DeSantis did like 100% ban everywhere. It was six weeks with all the exceptions, and Trump is dumping on it, and name me a single top 20 conservative voice who has uttered a word. Had Nikki Haley said that, had Mike Pence said that, they would have been all over them. This is what disturbs me. See, one of the things I like about DeSantis is that um, he's on a very short leash, Like, anything that's perceived as wrong, they'll pile on him. You know, they blame him for the Democrat winning in the Jacksonville mayor. And, like, in many respects, that's good. I mean, that will really keep him on his toes. With Trump, it's the exact opposite. That in itself is what bothers me. We need to be demanding others do the same thing. If you look, if you put yourself in the shoes of these other governors, all these rhinos, every one of them. And you look at conservative media ignoring DeSantis and sometimes even opposing him. Is there going to be any pressure for them to move to the right? I forgot about this, but um, the Wyoming Freedom Caucus put this out yesterday. So uh, DeSantis signed the bill, you know, with the, with all the the anti-grooming bills, including banning um, males and female bathrooms, which by the way, Trump supports On March 17th, Gordon said he won't sign. This wasn't even the bathrooms. He wouldn't even sign the sports ban. He called it draconian and discriminatory. I forgot about that. We focused on the rhino speaker at the time. I forgot that the governor, the governor of Wyoming said that. Wyoming. This is the sports bill. This is is like... You know, you could have the Bruce Jenner messaging that trans is amazing, it's natural, it's great, just don't ruin female sports. I mean, that's like the the weakest messaging. And he said that's draconian and discriminatory. This is what we have in almost every red state. You have a guy finally come along, and everyone's now shadow banning him. Oh, I don't want to talk about him, because, uh, Meta Trump, Meta Trump. This is what bothers me, I keep saying it. More than wanting DeSantis over Trump for president, which obviously I would, but I don't think it will last until then. 
You want to raise the bar and move the Overton window. The question everyone should be asking is why are we not demanding Florida's legislative session be the standard in Idaho, Wyoming, the Dakotas, Oklahoma, Texas, Alabama, South Carolina? Where is the move? We would have a different country if we would do that. That is the most important thing that's more important than the presidential election. There is no effort to do that. Why? It's pathetic. You want to support Trump for president, support him. But why are you not highlighting this? There's a great Time Magazine profile on DeSantis. And it's basically, you know, from a left-wing perspective, basically the media is now writing, holy smokes, like they see what I see from their perspective. This guy actually means business and he gets it done. This guy's a big threat. And he just basically, you know, had the most insane legislative session you could ever have. And I'm looking at that like, the left actually appreciates it from their vantage point. Our side doesn't. And like I said, when you understand, when you ask, why has there not been a reckoning? There's not been a reckoning because we don't have a movement that cares enough for that reckoning. Even the issues they care about, the FBI and the, the, you know, the, the, the targeting of Trump. Is there anyone focused on the appropriation bills and the debt ceiling to make this happen? I certainly am. And that's the thing. So we're going to continue to focus on the big picture issues and strategies, but also what we can do every day with the army we have. You know, I believe firmly we need a new party. But I'm not going to be a reverse thumb sucker and say, oh, so therefore I'm not going to get involved in anything else until then. No, we're going to fight on the issues we can, get what we can. Let me know your thoughts on the debt ceiling and more. Daniel Hurwitz at startmail.com. We have a very special guest tomorrow on some crazy things going on with the poison shots and what that portends for the future. Um, at RM Conservative on Twitter. And you can see my columns at The Blaze and Conservative Review. Please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. And thank you for listening.